welcome to the very first episode of my brand new podcast, But Why? This is a podcast that attempts to answer tricky questions by having honest conversations. This week, I chat to Matt Haig, English novelist and journalist. I ask him, but why does talking about mental health sometimes make it worse? If you're in a hurricane, it's not to belittle the power of a hurricane. That hurricane can be devastating, it can even be fatal. It can knock you off your feet, it can soak you to your skin, it can dominate your life. But you always know if you're in a hurricane, you aren't the hurricane. You're the mm. thing going through that hurricane. Whereas, you know, with depression, because it's in your mind, it's, you can very much think, well, this is me. And it's no, it's, it, it's a you in a certain moment of time that's experiencing this thing. I have definitely known more moments of happiness and contentment and gratitude this side of being ill and because of um, being ill. You know, before I had a breakdown, I was someone who needed life to be at the sort of highest volume. Even like something like a meal, you know, I'd always want like the spiciest curry or if I was watching a film, it'd have to be like an 18 violent film or, you know, Tar mm. Tarantino. And after, you know, during recovery, I actually was so grateful for normality and neutrality and being well. Common rhetoric is that the more we talk about mental health, the better. But what if there is more nuance to it than that? What if sometimes the chat gets in the way of the worthwhile solutions and even muddies the water? Blurring the line between the inconvenient reality of not always feeling happy and a problem that actually needs sorting. And what about the idea that in some situations, the flippant discussion of mental health has a counter effect? I don't know about you, but I certainly find that to be the case on World Mental Health Day, when the well-meaning advice and solidarity ends up scrambling my mind. This chat was recorded in the magical window of relative normality in September 2020, in case the time frame seems to be a little bit confusing to you. It's a frank one full of sage advice on learning to accept the dark bits alongside the light, a concept we all need a little more help with in this current circumstance. Hello, how are you? I'm good. I'm tired like you, but I'm good generally, yes. I was super late last night. I don't know why. I was just watching Netflix and it just went... I don't know. I just couldn't get off the sofa. So I was what just, time like, is super late? Well, I'm all, we're always after midnight, <gasps> and, and it was probably after one. What? Are you, aren't you, haven't you got school age kids? Um, we've got homeschooled kids. And, okay, but, but uh, I, I, they, well, no, no, no. They they go to sleep around half ten, ten, ten sort of time, and um, they're up. They're quite, they're getting a bit lazier. So they're staying in bed now. And my daughter um, is just into Jacqueline Wilson now. So she just stays in bed and reads Jacqueline oh. Wilson. So that's fine. Oh, so homeschooling, this 2020 hasn't been, that aspect of it hasn't been such a crisis for you, having um, a kid at home? No, I mean, two things haven't been a crisis for me. That's like I work from home anyway. Mm. I'm a writer, so the work didn't dry up right. and financially okay. And yeah, my um, kids, we homeschool. Well, we're in Brighton, which is, you know, it's the hippie <laughs> enclave where everyone, it's kind of a mainstream choice in Brighton. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like the conventional option. And the thing is, right, with, with homeschooling, you see, it has been a bit of a change for us because people think of homeschooling and they have a set idea of what homeschooling is. And obviously that's changed this year because a lot of people haven't had to do homeschooling. <laughs> yeah. But in Brighton, it's not our homeschooling normally in 2019 is not 
um, actually at home. You know, there's loads of groups and um, uh. places we get. There's, because we're in Brighton, where so many people homeschool, there's like loads and loads and loads of stuff. We used to live in York where no one homeschooled. And the only people who did were for religious reasons. And it was about eight kids. And it was totally different. And we definitely felt like the weirdos who homeschooled there. But in Brighton, it's like you can just go out and... Um, so you, by homeschooling, actually, outside of 2020, you weren't in the confines of your home? No, sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Like I, I used to do Fridays and we'd do like history lesson. But it'd be a lot of YouTube and a lot of, um, you know, you just try and make it fun. I, I'm very different to my wife. My wife's super organised and structures it. And I'm just like, I, I sort of sweep in and just improvise it and play by ear and get stressed. Yeah. But um, my mum's a head teacher. So she used to sort of send us the curriculum stuff of where they're meant to be. So it was quite, we were quite straight laced as homeschoolers go in terms of um, being quite teachery. Well, I mean, I have absolutely nothing but admiration for you for doing it because <laughs> it's bloody hard. But but maybe it's not so hard if you've chosen it, whereas when it's well, inflicted on you. And I think one thing I noticed, because we had loads of panicky friends who say, well, you homeschool, give us some tips and stuff. One thing I realised at the start is like a lot of people thought you had to replicate the school day, which you, which we we did for a little while but you just it, it's too long to do like a nine to four kind of day of learning when, when you've got one-on-one -on -one or one-on-two at home that's just far you can actually cram a school day into just a morning of, of like an hour and a half two hours of learning and, and then have some sort of downtime so yeah i think people get daunted by the idea of how much they have to do and i always i, I i'm i've got family in norway so i always love to say about how norway's got such amazing um rates of you know academic people but they don't actually start school till seven or something in norway and they have a very chilled out approach during the early years up to sort of secondary age of schooling so i think i think sometimes in the uk i won't, I won't turn this into a big rant about education but I no. think in, in the uk no, it's really interesting get get it a bit wrong sometimes with our, our priorities in terms of tests and exams and all that stuff anyway. i mean it does all play into the same conversation in some ways what do you wish you'd known as a kid what do I wish I'd known as a kid? Oh, a bazillion things. Mm. I would definitely not have believed I would one day be a writer. So it would be nice to know that I actually had a future where I was doing a job that I actually liked because I had no, I had no self-esteem or anything. Um, if I uh, known as a kid, I think that everything was going to be all right because I was a worried, a worried little kid, and um, and I was a bit introverted and anxious. So anything that would have calmed me. Mm. down would have been amazing oh, um yeah it's heartbreaking to think of those <laughs> those of those kids so isn't it if, if you've got your yeah. whole life to worry and you're worrying as a child i know and i used to i used to so worry as a child i used to be uh, yeah I, I i had i think i moved school a lot when i was a kid i think one of my problems with schools comes back from my own experience because i was often the new kid uh, so we, I moved school about four or five times because my parents moved around. Um, yeah. But anyway, so, yeah, that would just be all right. It'll you know, be okay. It'll, it'll be okay. There will be shit times, but there will be some amazing times as well. Mm. Um, yeah. Not, yes. not the most original answer. No, it's good, though. I mean, you could try and push it, but that is <laughs> – it's, it's, 
Yeah, I've got a real complete aside, but when my, one of my kids is the more sensitive, I've got three, but and often when he's distressed, I just say to him, I'm here, I'm here. And that seems to have that, it's not the same thing, but it has yeah. that real short-circuiting thing of just landing you in yeah. the moment. Yeah, grounding it. Yeah, kids, yeah. It, it, I feel like it's when... It, it's very easy to feel up in the air when you're a kid. I think this year has been so... Because I, I'm thinking not just of my own kids, but I've got a niece who's had a problem when she... You know, she found it very hard at the start of lockdown because that was changed. Then when the schools... She knew the schools were going back, she found that really stressful. It's just too much going on, isn't it? And it's... Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I keep saying as well, what we need to remember is, you know, from my five-year-old, six months is a huge portion of his life. Like, we can yeah. rationalise six months, but it's mad for them. Remember how long yeah. the school holidays felt? Six months yeah. is, like, so yes. big. Yeah, no, exactly. I know. I mean, it's felt pretty bloody long anyway, hasn't it? You know, for a 45-year-old, it's felt long. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Well, if you, Yeah, I know. If you're a kid, even if you're like a 10-year-old, well, mine are 11 and 12, it's, 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 a long, it's a long time that they've been mainly seeing their friends via Zoom. And, yeah, all of that. Yeah, and, and also this that uh, I've got a, a two and a half year old that like sanitizing and seeing people in masks is, is an absolute norm now. It's bizarre. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. What is your worst habit? Oh my god, I've got so many. I mean I, I, I genuinely feel the thing I wish I was I was better at is, is spending less time on the internet. I spend far too mm. much time on the internet. So I, I just say phone addiction. Um, mm. Probably, but that's a very that's a universal one, isn't it? Pretty much. I mean, that's like ninety percent of us. I read some about eighty percent of people in the UK um, sleep with their phone by the bed. It might be eighty five percent. No, yeah. I leave it downstairs. I leave it downstairs. Yeah, I now charge my phone in the kitchen, so that's, mm, that's it's I massive. Impressed, yeah. But I feel like, yeah, I, feel, I mean, I have. I, I've got all. I've got loads of other bad habits as well. I mean, I, I, I've always, <laughs> um, yeah, I won't get too heavy, but I've always had a bad relationship with alcohol. I don't really drink now, but when I do drink, I can't stop drinking. So that that's uh, a bad thing. Um, I I don't think I'm an alcoholic. I've just got a British thing of, of not having a good relationship with um, alcohol. And uh, what else? Oh, so so. I mean, I'm, I'm quite slobby. I, I, I get up late. Like, I wake up, I wake up, I'm actually washed, this is clean, I'm talking to you, um, I, I felt like I should actually be hygienic before mm. I did this podcast, but but often it'll be like mid-afternoon before I sort of slovenly, you know, go into the shower and get up and get fresh, so I'm a bit of a slob, um, I, I try not to be, um, but being a writer, when you've got no reason to get out of the house you get into those sort of slobby habits. Um, I'm trying not to be, beat myself up about that. I suppose beating myself up is a bad habit. So, yeah, um, I, yeah, I'm just one big bad habit. It's so funny. It, like, because I'm asking, so I don't drink. I gave up drinking 15 months ago because it's terrible for my mental health. Yeah. Um, it, it, it took me to 38 to realize that and have you ever done a big chunk without it yeah i did eight years without it when and i had wow after, and you've gone after i had my breakdown i had i went from the year uh 2000 to 2007 8 
And the first time I drank alcohol after that was at my uh, grandmother's funeral <laughs> where I had the wow. communion wine. I <laughs> know. <laughs> 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 I, I, I realised what I was doing. And then when I had that, I went, but no, it Ooh. was actually. What, do you know what it was? I I, I started having a. I, uh, this sounds really bad, but I started drinking again when when we had the kids, and it wasn't because I was like, "Oh my God, they're driving me to drink." It was more that because I had to suddenly be resp- responsible. I kind of trusted myself not to go too crazy because mm. you can only, you know, if if you are sort of like up all night drinking, you can't you can't be too hungover when uh, you're getting woken up at five in the morning. So, um, I. I I did do that a few times, but generally speaking, I became a more sensible drinker when I had kids, but I used to be terrible. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think why my mental health was so bad. I mean, I used to take drugs and everything when I was younger, but I used to live in a beefer, so I, I did it all. Mm. But um, And I was very unhealthy when I was younger. But um, yeah, alcohol. I think we've collectively got a bad relationship yeah, I agree. with alcohol. I mean, you, you look at the Mediterranean countries and they seem to have it better i mean i glug it back and it's not about sort of downing shots and stuff but yeah in the, in the uk we've got a strange it is definitely bad for my mental health Cammy. i i i marry you 15 months I, going. yeah i i just i just it just got to the point that the self-loathing would kick in before i'd finished the first drink so it's just like and i wasn't drinking very much but it's it's just not worth it yeah it's not, it's not worth it no, you're right. I'm, <laughs> I'm not judging you. I'm not judging you. Well, well self-loathing is two things, isn't it? Because you get the self-loathing because it's just a chemical reaction to the alcohol. And also you just hate the fact that you've done it, don't you? Because, you know. Yeah, it's not prioritising yourself. The lockdown must have been hard, though. I mean, we kind of needed our Saturday night gin and tonic nights just to just. Yeah. It, yeah. And also it's just that a bit like early parenting, you've got this massive blur. And if you don't separate where the adult time is or where the weekend is, yeah. I was craving it. But also when the world was imploding a bit, we all had to really dig deep into the things that try and keep us sane and alcohol. Yes. I ate a lot of chocolate which I'm now trying to come back from. Yeah, from the chocolate. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, you just, I mean, it's got a really addictive personality. I'm no. like, oh, oh, what is it? What's that make? The uh, Tony. Tony's, Tony's. Yeah, Tony Chocolone. <laughs> it's really good. Wow, it's so good. I'm just, yeah, it, it's so good. I'm not even a massive chocolate person, but I can devour one of those big, you feel like you're in Charlie's Chocolate Factory, don't you? Well, and also because the, um, pieces of different sizes to represent how the chocolate industry isn't fair you can accidentally pull off such a massive chunk that you're halfway yeah through. yeah that's true it's very good chocolate anyhow as i say i'm trying to currently curb that addiction so we'll not we'll not dwell on it <laughs> um yeah. so, so the big topic to talk about is is mental health is it hard for you to constantly talk about your mental health uh well the risk is going into autopilot and finding new things to say about it. Because, I mean, I wrote uh, Reasons to Stay Alive in 2015. And since then, I've been predominantly what the main thing I've been kind of known for. So I've, I'm sort of like, I, I never wanted to become like Mr. Depression or that to be like a brand. You know, I, I mean, I'm very lucky with the people who uh, publish my books and that they've never said, oh, right, you've got to write another mental health book. Or, you know, straight after Reasons to Stay Alive, for instance, I wrote a children's book about Father Christmas called A Boy Called Christmas, which was like the opposite of what 
um, Reasons to Stay Alive was about. It was just a book to cheer me up. So um, I'm lucky in that I can, in terms of my working life, I can write about what I want to. I, and then I, when I do write about mental health and talk about mental health, it's because I want to and because I'm in a good place it. I mean, the thing is, though, my whole point with mental health is that you know, it should be shameless. It should be a natural thing. It's not something we have occasionally. We always have mental health. We might not always be mentally ill. And, you know, it's it's like, you know, you get your personal trainers who talk about fitness all the time and physical health. And talking about mental health is such a broad church anyway. I mean, it's kind of talking about everything, you know, our, our minds are everything. So I'm quite, I'm quite totally fine with it. I mean, occasionally, you know, I, when I get asked to relive literally the worst days of my life in terms of the suicide or stuff, that gets a bit intense. But I also feel so different to that 24-year-old person who had a breakdown that it's almost like I'm talking about someone else, you know? I'm not saying I'm I'm not like someone who says I'm 100% recovered. I, I can still be very prone to anxiety and depression, and panic attacks and things. I mean, not so much panic attacks actually. I do get the onset of panic attacks, but I don't. I I I, I feel like among for me, this is totally subjective. But for me personally, there's various aspects of mental health which are very hard to sort of recover from and get out of, and there's others that I, there are techniques that seem to work. And I feel like panic panic attacks is definitely. I'd say to anyone who gets panic attacks, they are definitely something you can get on top of and control and you've got to almost like do a jedi mind trick with yourself you've got to actually pretend you want the panic attack i know that sounds so weird yeah that's exactly it you, you kind of like almost as a test yeah like you know like it, people do a tough physical workout for a test well you almost treat that as a kind of mental workout like, okay so i'm having this panic attack but how am I, it's not, I can't do much about that. It's how I cope with this panic attack. So it's like, I sometimes just like, if I can, if no one's around, I just lie down on the floor and invite it in and say, I want, I actually, I want this panic attack. And the thing is that panic doesn't want to be wanted. It wants you to be panicked about the panic. And that's why panic attack builds into anxiety because um, it snowballs because you are panicking because of the panic. You get anxious. Because of the anxiety and you get into this vicious circle which you can't get out of and then you have to hack your brain at some point into a state of acceptance which is kind of hard for a lot of people to reach but with panic panic i just got so used to having it all the time and i realized that all that crazy stuff my brain was telling me wasn't true after a while you know my, my brain was convinced that i'd be dead at the age of 25 i obviously lived beyond 25 that my partner would leave me, still with my partner, but nothing good would happen, lots of good happened. And slowly your brain starts to realise that voice is a bullshit voice and you, other you is kind of inner therapist that develops as time, time goes on. It's so true. I'm agreeing with, yeah, it's so funny. I spent a couple of years in deep, like, panic attack zone and then you go, well, well actually, the time goes further and further along. And I really um, benefited from learning some of the science about the adrenaline yeah. peak that's going on and going, right, all right, get this adrenaline through my body. And then then you do always come out the other side. And I think there is something, even with the other forms of mental health, that once you've got your own benchmarks – 
I'm trying to think when I've, I've had bad patches of depression. Once you've bit survived one, you, yes. you do you do you do know that you've got that capacity to, for the lights to come back on a bit more. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I feel that. But I like like because like if I look at my own life, I've probably had about nineteen or twenty bouts of proper serious depression and anxiety, which on one hand sounds horrendous, but that's also twenty times you practice recovering. Mm. And you kind of like, so I'm not saying like when you get depressed, it still feels as bad. Mm. But I'm never suicidal now because even when even when my head gets into that zone, there's a little bit of me that knows it's been into this zone before. Even when it thinks, oh, this time it's going to be the worst because that's what my depression does. Yeah, it always finds a way to say this time it's going to be different because and this time it's going to be different because or this time you didn't actually ever have this thought before this and it always tries to add something new and that's where it powers but that in itself becomes a familiar pattern of mm. thinking this is the worst moment this is you know you won't get out of it this time always and it's like so 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 you you kind of um you know i i don't fall as often now because in those early stages where you sort of like feel like you're sleep deprived or you've had too much alcohol or whatever and it starts to creep in you, I, I reach this point where I can sort of self-therapy myself out of it by accepting it. And also, yeah, like you say, you know, understanding the science helps, I think. And also mm. a thing that really helped me was seeing a separation between myself and it. Like mm. I used to very, I, I, just the language we use, I used to say, oh, I, I'm a depressive or I'm a bit of a depressive. And it's like that is a very sort of toxic way of looking at it because yeah. then, then you are, you become the depression. You are seeing yourself and your identity becomes the yeah. depression. And it's like, it's what, what was the key separation for me was some, someone who has depression, someone who goes through depression, who has experiences of depression, mm. but seeing it as an experience. I, I use a lot, and it's becoming a bit of a cliche now, but I use a lot of sort of weather metaphors for it i mean mm -hmm. we all do we all talk about dark clouds and things like that but um i feel like it's really an important way of seeing it because no you know if you're in a hurricane it's not to belittle the power of a hurricane that hurricane can be devastating it can even be fatal it can knock you off your feet it can soak you to your skin it can dominate your life but you always know if you're in a hurricane you aren't the hurricane you're the mm. thing going through that hurricane whereas you know with depression because it's in your mind it's you can very much um think well this is me and it's no it's, it's a you in a certain moment of time that's experiencing this thing and like you know the hardest question i ever got at a live event where i was doing a live event about depression back in the days when live events happened was <laughs> well live real life events you know mm. um was this person who said well you know i read your book and i liked your book but you had a loving partner, you had parents who were quite open-minded, you had people in your life. So, you know, like you stayed alive effectively for other people, you had people who loved you, you had a support network there. What would you say to somebody who has no one at all and they're in this pit of despair and they're feeling dreadful? And that was like so hard. Hmm. And the, the only answer, well, the answer, I didn't have it, at hand then but when i thought about it i think well two things firstly when i was in that um pit of despair i wasn't feeling like i was staying alive 
for other people because mm-hmm. depression's so weird. And what people don't understand when people say, talk about suicide or selfish and stuff is that you can convince yourself that it's selfish to stay alive. You can convince yourself mm-hmm. that you're a burden on mm-hmm. people and that people are better off without you. And you, it's a very real thing. It's not just a sort mm. of wallowing thing you say. You can actually believe mm. that. And that, that that's part of that. So I, I feel like I didn't necessarily stay alive for other people. I was very grateful for their support with hindsight. But at the time, depression's so mm. weird. You felt like even my partner, who had been with for quite a few years, even though I was 24, um, I felt like she was a thousand miles away from me when I was mm. in the same room. So you felt very different. But also, I think the reason you stay alive is for other versions of you. So the other mm. people you stay alive for, I'm not who I was at 24. None of mm. us are who we were 10 years ago or who we were as kids. Or, you know, we, we, we become, we're the same, but we're different. We, we evolve into different versions of us. So the peer person you stay alive for is um, the person in the future looking back at and thinking, thank God you didn't do something stupid. So I'm wondering as you're talking, but I think like early to mid twenties is quite a common yeah, crisis definitely. point. And I definitely, from my own experience at that point, I remember thinking, is this who I am as an adult? You know, is this anxious person who can't do this and who doesn't enjoy that? Is this what adulthood's like? And, and I think that's why it's so debilitating, isn't it? Because you haven't got, you're like, you're no longer a child, but you're, a, yeah, you don't have anything to reference to pull you out of it. Yeah, and I, I had a real problem with the idea of being a grown-up. I had a mm. problem with the idea of being responsibility. Uh, responsibility. So I stayed in uni for as long as possible, then did an MA. I went to whole uni for about four years. Then I did an MA at Leeds. And then I'd sort of run out of, of ed- education. And I mm. kind of had to... And then we, I, I had one one winter in London doing a load of... Uh, dead-end jobs. I worked in a wine shop in Oddbins. I, I, I sold printer cartridges over the phone from a script in Wembley uh, for about f- uh, three weeks. And uh, uh, what else? Yeah, other, other, other sort of... Oh, I, I, worked, I sold advertising space uh, in Croydon for the Press Gazette. I, I, I had this sort of series of jobs I wasn't enjoying at all. And um, then I... I went to Ibiza and, and me and my uh, girlfriend went to Ibiza for three summers in a row. And my girlfriend, um, Andrea, who's now my wife, had the good job. And she was the sort of like one who, who was, uh, she, she became an office manager for the biggest sort of nightclub and hotel uh, business out there. And I was just like sitting in a bar all day um, selling tickets. And I, I just did not want to, uh, no, it's not, I, I didn't want to grow up. I just didn't know how to grow up. I, was, mm. I, I had no self-esteem. I had this vague idea I wanted to be a journalist, but I didn't know how to become a journalist. You've got to remember this is like pre-social media when you can mm. just get yourself out there. So, you know, anything you had in life, you couldn't just, do it yourself in those days you had to actually either go for interviews or speak to people or and I was like the world's worst networker I just couldn't go up to people or have that confidence so um I think I think I was destined to hit some kind of crisis point and then that September two weeks before coming back to the UK had been relatively physically healthy. You know, we'd obviously had our crazy times in Ibiza, but as long, long time before, we were now living in a very quiet villa on the east of the island, and it was uh, lovely and tranquil and um, 
beautiful. And I'd been for a run that morning. Um, I was a smoker back then, but I hadn't even smoked a cigarette that day, hadn't drank any alcohol, hadn't done any, uh, uh, you know, unhealthy things that day. And I just had this sort of panic attack out of nowhere, but I didn't know it was a panic attack. I thought I was going to die. And then the panic attack didn't end. And I just kept on, it kept on going, going, going. And when I came out of it, I was just in this totally new world of depression. That's what made me suicidal. I just thought I will never move on from this. Yeah. I didn't know how I really, how I'd got into it. Mm. So I didn't know how to get out of it. So yeah, it was, it it was a pickle. And I didn't, my, my understanding back then of mental health was you were either sane or you were mad. Yeah. you know, it's totally binary, and I had no. Yeah. Hmm. You know, obviously, we're all on this sort of scale. So yeah. Suddenly slipped. Yeah. Again, there's that sinking feeling of like, oh, I'm one of them now, and that, yeah. and this is where I'm going to end up. And and the portrayal of what I thought mental, you know, it's people in hospital gowns with yeah sunken eyes, and and that, of course yeah. that is a side of it. But yeah, we didn't have exposure to recovery stories. I don't think. No, and I thought, and I was scared of talking about it because I thought, then as soon as you talk about it, you get sections and put in a straitjacket in yeah. the cell. And I'd watched too many old movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's yeah. when I was a kid, and I thought that was my view of mental yeah. health, like these sort of prison-like hospitals where you're sort of straitjacket or you get electric shock therapy or something. And you know, it's a totally outdated view of mental health treatment. But yeah, I um. Yeah, I, I, I stigmatise myself. You know, people talk in a mental health conversation about stigma and it's always blaming someone else for it. And there is a lot of toxic stuff out there. But what we don't talk about as much is how we stigmatise ourselves. I, so I, felt, I felt like, you know, oh, I'm this mad person and I'm just going to be this mad, scary man. You know, and I, I wasn't actually, I, I never I never was actually delusional. I mean, everything was exaggerated, but in terms of my illness, I was, when I look back now, I was incredibly sane within mm. it. You know, I knew, I always knew who I was. I just felt physically and mentally horrendous. And, uh, you know, there were times it was, you know, just felt overwhelming and I wouldn't be able to get through this. And never, what was scary for me is at the start, because it was so intense, I couldn't detect any fluctuation. There wasn't anything I did that made me feel better. And that's when you feel trapped, isn't it? If you feel yeah. like you've got no control over your condition. Yeah, that's when it's when you pull on the whole, all your different like things to pull you back and that doesn't happen. Yeah, absolutely. What was the tipping point to, to, to climbing out of the hole? There was no single thing. I mean, I went about it the wrong way because I had an early experience with pills, which was a bad experience on diazepam, which was the wrong thing for me. So I, then I became like phobic about uh prescription drugs and meds and um i never was um offered therapy so i ended up going through it with no pills and no therapy and which is what kept me in it i'm sure um for a long time Mm. and i'd have little bits where i was rising out and i'd be straight back down and this would go on for ages and eventually a key moment happened i came out ill in september and then the following april I had a key moment where, and this sounds such a little thing, but I remember it. We were living in Leeds, and I was walking in with Andrea. We, we'd rented out an office because Andrea was running a, uh, a little tiny freelance PR company, and we, we'd rented out this office. 
and we were still massively in debt. So I don't know why we were doing that, but nothing was very rational <laughs> in our heads. Yeah. But we needed money, and we thought we needed to have an office to look for. <laughs> and I just had a moment where I was thinking about work. I was thinking, all right, I need to sort of like send off some emails and to magazine editors and article, and I was sort of stressing about it. But I was actually happy when I when the moment ended to have been stressing in a normal, a normal way about mm. something that wasn't me, that wasn't directly my own thought. Mm, just a normal I, kind of stress. Yeah. And it was only lasted like a few seconds. Mm. But I, I physically felt it was impossible. I felt like the pain was so strong up to that point. It sounds melodramatic. But mm. 24-7, morning till night, moment I open my eyes, the moment I fall asleep, it was continuous there and then I realized that well oh, oh I just thought of something else and that made me feel so happy weirdly mm. and, and, then I, and then I thought you know those moments would get longer and longer where there'd be other patch so I suppose it was um starting to think beyond myself and and to, to to start writing and to start thinking outwardly about life and literally holding on long enough to see that sort of fluctuation mm. and to actually reach a point of like being okay with being depressed, I, I, not to belittle the depression itself, but to actually be okay as someone who gets depression rather yeah. than this person who's like continually horrified that I'm in that state. So it was reaching that state of acceptance. It was realizing that um, time was slowly disproving all the stuff that my panic disorder was telling me, you know, about dying young and this, that, and the other, and like, you know, you won't make it through the week and, oh, there's another week I made it through. And, and, mm. and, and it, so it was, there was no one magic moment. It was just a slow readjustment, um, which happens, which is why I think it's so important sometimes just to get people to hold on. If they're in that sort of suicidal yeah. moment, just, just give it a week, give it yeah. like, and then give it another week and then give it a month. And before mm. you know it, you will see. It shifted. Will, it was shifted. And it's not mm. to say you will be suddenly not depressed or not anxious, but you'll you'll be out of that suicidal moment. You know, you don't stay in that suicidal moment forever, even if you stay depressed. You, your attitude shifts. Yeah. We're sold this belief that that life is one big happy thing, and, and it's, it's just not. And once you understand about appreciating the dark bit, you know, that it comes yeah. all as a mix... And, again, I think that's what happens when you're going into your 20s. You're like, all oh, right. I've got to like get a job and do some yeah. really boring stuff and pay bills. Yeah. And I honestly think that this thing, and I think it's quite a Western thing where we actually accept, feel like we are, are entitled to a continual state of happiness and anything yeah. less than that is kind of failure. Mm. And, I, and I know social media and stuff can feed into that because we're often presenting the best bits of our life. But I feel like, um, you know, uh, I've been, I'm not a religious person, but I've been reading a lot about um, Buddhism in uh, mm. lockdown. And Buddhism believes, certainly Tibetan Buddhism, they believe that um, you cannot have joy without despair. It's literally mm. the same thing. And yeah. often, often the joy stems from the despair. And, and I feel like that's such a good way of looking at it. Because when I think of my very worst moments in life, actually... Uh, in, at some later point, whether it's in terms of life or in terms of career, there's been such a good thing that has come out from having lived through that experience. Always, always near enough. And, and very often the things that we're super looking forward to or that we're super jealous of and then we get, 
They're always like, rubbish. Yeah, but then, then that could be a big existential crisis. So um, I'm trying to get a bit more philosophical about things like that. Yeah, me too. yeah, it's interesting. I, I have again now like don't make a big deal of my birthday because I just had these like ridiculous illusions of what my husband should do for my birthday, and then he never did it because he was not in my head. And then then he ruined the whole day. Whereas it's just like a normal day, a nice normal day is. Yes, is, I mean, I, I my wife is like annoyingly amazing at birthdays. So, and because because I had a birthday in lockdown, it was like the most amazing it. birthday. Like she nailed it. While I'm into movies, and I came down, and there was a literal red carpet. She she'd ordered some sort of red carpet, and then, then there was a popcorn. Uh. Then my present was a barbecue, and we had a barbecue outside. Then we watched Hamilton on. Um, and and it, like it was such a good day. It was like the best day in lockdown. And there's no way I can even begin to compete with my lame sort of like Amazon shop that I'll just do last minute. But- I think you are um, empowered to ask her what is in her head because maybe because yes. like I still there's a particular candle that I like and Ben you still always or still does try and buy me a different candle to be original. It's like no, I want that candle. Like, don't don't make it harder for yourself. Listen to what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I think there's no shame in that. Well, well, she has written up a list, um, which, <laughs> right. which uh, and she says you, you, she said it's not all of that. You know, take things out, but it's like just do the list. <laughs> I'll do my list. Do the um, list, and you'll you'll go. You'll get it right. And now a quick break for a couple of ads. One from me for my book, which is also called But Why? How to answer tricky questions from kids by having an honest conversation with yourself. It includes, but why do we have feelings? And but why don't I feel happy all the time as well as many more? It's available to pre-order now via the link in my show notes. So I actually want to talk to you about the Midnight Library, which I haven't finished, but I am partway through and it's brilliant, which is your new book, I should say. Can you explain the premise of it to those who are listening? Um, yeah, well, the Midnight Library itself is a library that exists between life and death, where the main character, Nora, finds herself. And she, she's she been, you know, speaking of mental health, she's been depressed for all kinds of life reasons. And she does something stupid and she finds herself between life and death in this library. And it's an infinite library. And every single book on the shelves of this magical library is a different version of her life if she'd have lived it a different Mm. way and she's obviously like drowning in regrets and just by opening the page of a book she gets to actually fall into that life and live that life and she's got a librarian who she recognizes from her childhood mrs al um to sort of guide her through so she sort of talks through all her regrets and gets to see how to live basically and what the perfect life is for her and it's going i mean i've written like 16 books or 17 books but the response to this has been lovely i think people are really um i didn't know and especially as i'm sort of more known in recent years for non-fiction i didn't Mm. know how people were going to respond to it but i think it's yeah, it's been lovely. I think it's a bit of like the the reason normal people blew up. Have you did you watch not normal? People? Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's it that, was... It, that that was a moment for us to reflect on our lives, and and this book, you know, we're at a transitional moment as a society and as individuals, aren't we? And it's yes. like, what what do we not want to regret from this point onwards? I suppose. No, exactly, and I yeah, uh, I I feel like we're all sort of 
wishing for other lives and alternatives, but <laughs> also trying to kind of like one, you know, being positive about this year. I think one thing about this year is we've um, hmm. we we have had a chance to reflect and we have had a chance to work out the things we do miss and the things hmm. we don't really ever miss, but we did loads of before just because it was. The things you did you know like i i mean I, I definitely don't miss pointless meetings in london that came to nothing but i had to commute on a horrible southern rail train to to london and i don't miss that at all so there are things you know there's things about life now that i actually prefer i mean i i'd obviously press a button to not have covid around and you know all of that but mm. Yeah, and I've also had to cope, you know, because like all my treats, I don't know about you, but all my treats suddenly became illegal. Everything I normally look forward to, like <laughs> restaurants and holidays, basically. Yeah, go on. And, the, and the odd trip to the cinema and theatre. All of those things, mm. which were my rewards, you know, yeah. so it's been a rewardless year. So mm. you, have to, you have to have other things that, um, you know, like, start to appreciate nature which i'm genuinely doing i might just yeah. partly be my age as well but i, I I'm, I'm liking a ramble across the hills it's it's happened it's and, like you're like yeah and you're like i'm doing this a bit ironically to begin with but then you're like oh no yeah well i used to my mum and dad used to drag me on long walks and i i, yeah. used, to, I used to be like the total archetypal teenager going, oh what you know? What is the point of this nature? And but I I like it. I, I genuinely I, I I I whether it's the difference in the air or whatever. But I, I genuinely feel like um, walking in nature is very good for my mental health. They did a study actually of um, people doing a walk for forty five minutes, and they did they took one group of people walking around a shopping centre and one group of people walking around a forest, and they compared they did a sort of mental health survey and they compared things like posture, all kinds of things. Mm. And unanimously the walk around the, the uh, uh, forest was definitely good for your health, but in all kinds of ways, the walking around the shopping center wasn't good for your health. Yeah, so of course. Maybe, yeah. Simulation. There's an amazing book um, called silence in the age of noise. Have you read it? No, good title though. Um, There's a guy who is Norwegian and he walked across the Arctic and on his own and when he got out of the plane, he decided to take the batteries out of his radio. So he was in silence in whiteout for 56 days, left with his own head. Oh, my God. That'd be hard for me. Do you know what? I have tinnitus. So I'd have like <laughs> 45 days of a ringing... But, but no, I, no, I, I like the um, I like the, the premise. It's a really beautiful book and about what you learn from sitting in silence. But I mean, categorically, I could not be with my own thoughts in silence for that <laughs> amount of time, especially with no visual stimulus. You know, you're yeah. just lit. Yeah, you need, on you need to dip into Netflix for at least. You a, need to scroll. Yeah. Um, as per the, your life of regrets, if you could go back and and take away your mental health issues and erase them from your life, would you do that? No, I think definitely not. I feel like I wouldn't want to relive them. Definitely wouldn't want to relive them. And um, if, if that was the only option, then I would probably opt for a life without um, mental health. But I absolutely wouldn't. I mean, I have definitely known more moments of happiness and contentment and gratitude this side of being ill and because of um, being ill. You know, before I had a breakdown, I was someone who needed life to be at the sort of highest volume. Talking about distraction, I needed, you know, to have mm -hmm. 
even like something like a meal, you know, I'd always want like the spiciest curry or if I was watching a film, it had to be like an 18 violent film or, you know, Tar- mm. Tarantino. Everything was like extreme intense experiences. That's why we ended up in a beefer, you know, mm. had, had to, you know, not just have a few beers. I'd have yeah, go you know, for it. 20 vodka lemons or whatever. And um, so, yeah. And, and after, you know, during recovery, I actually was so grateful for normality and neutrality and being well. And I feel like that has been the ultimate shift. And I couldn't have had that without having had the mental health problems. I feel like also, you know, anxiety is a horrendous thing. But it also, you know, at a low level, anxiety Mm. is effectively curiosity. You know, you're Mm. you're worrying about things and you're asking questions Mm. about things. And, and, And that in a low dose can actually be quite a good thing. And it's quite useful for creativity as well. And I feel like it's about accepting yourself, isn't it? And if, if you sort of like said, okay, a mental health becomes, it shapes you in so many ways that I can't actually imagine mm. where or what I'd be now if I hadn't had that. And I honestly think I'm probably in a better space for having it and actually know in a weird, weird way, feel kind of saner. I know more about myself and who mm. I am than if I hadn't gone through that. So... That's a long way of saying no. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I'll keep it. I'll keep it. Yeah, definitely. Here we circle back to the original question. But why just talking about mental health sometimes make it worse? We're very good at patting ourselves on the back for the mental health conversation and the fact that we're talking about it more. And it's like, yes, we are definitely talking about it more. And I don't want to belittle that because it's good. And I've been a part of that. You know, I talk about mental health a lot in my books and social media. And it's good that we're having a mental health conversation. But if we think that's the end point, you know, that it's not an end in itself. Talk is very valuable and it's what therapy is based on. But we need more than just to accept people talking about their mental health. For for instance, it's not how we talk about it. You know, I feel like, you know, mm-hmm. still, if you look at the front page, a lot of... Um, for instance, a lot of glossy magazines, women's mags, tabloid mags, you know, they'll talk about mental health as a kind of scandal. I, I saw last last year, I can remember looking at the cover of Closer magazine and it had um, Geordie Shaw confessions. And the confessions were that they had uh, the panic attacks, one of them, and the other one had gone through depression. And it's like, it shouldn't be a confession. It's not a confession. It's just your health. And, like, we all have mental health. And it's, it's presented often as a secret and mm. as a scandal. So a lot of the time we're talking about mental health. We're not talking about it in a way that reduces stigma. And also, you know, if you go on Twitter, like I do a lot, you know, like in, in political debates and arguments and what, how we talk about Donald Trump, who is obviously horrendous, but they often use mental health as the reason, say, Donald Trump shouldn't be president or, you know, mental illness is is the ultimate slur. And, like, what I really hate, one thing I really hate, and I've had it myself, is when people say as an insult, oh, you need help or you need to get help, as, like, that's the worst thing to say to, Mm. you know, I mean, that's not going to help people get help. That just stigmatises help. It's like we all need help sometimes. Why is that? a common no. why do we you know like say oh she needs help and you know i wouldn't say i've never done that before i'm sure i have said or thought that about something but it's interesting we have these sort of stigmatizing 
ideas in our heads. So I feel like, you know, it's so ingrained and there's so much unraveling to do. And also we don't know that much about the science of mental illness. So there's still a lot of mm-hmm. stuff there. But I think, I think we're fundamentally designing, have designed our societies to almost be um, literally the worst kind of societies to live in for uh, self-acceptance. It's, like, it's yeah. like the whole of consumer culture is based on identifying flaws to then fix. You know, no one looks at a newborn baby and, and sees a lack and thinks, oh, well, they haven't got that many social media followers or they haven't, you know, they're not earning that much money or they haven't got any designer, a designer wardrobe or they don't have a perfect kitchen or whatever. And yet, as we get older and older, we, the bar on what we need to be like at that default happiness gets higher and higher and mm. higher. And I think if we could treat ourselves like those sort of newborn babies and remember that we are, you know, we are just human beings. We've got the same human worth as a newborn baby and to be a bit kinder to ourselves and to actually feel like, you know, we've got enough. We won the lottery by being here. You know, the chances of being born, the chances of our parents meeting at the time they did and uh, copulating mm. at the time we did. And, you know, I won't go into details. You, you know how that works. But, you know, um, it's, it's just like, you know, it's a bazillion to one, isn't it, that we're here. Mm. And maybe our purpose on life isn't to try and be a Kardashian. And maybe our purpose on life is just to, like, yeah. witness the world and witness life and witness mm. each other and be there for each other. And, and maybe that's it. And we sold this idea on, like, reality TV that normal life is something we have to, like, escape. You know, that, that, um, I love reality TV shows, so I'm not being a snob about that. But I'm just saying there's this there's subtext of them, often, certainly other Simon Cowell types, where you, you, you have footage of someone in their normal home life mm. with their nan or whatever. And then, like, there's the promise of becoming, like, One Direction or whatever. And it's like... It's like, you know, the world of red carpets and movie premieres is, for, is, is the only way to be truly happy. And actually normal life, like yeah. 99.999% of people live, is, is something you need to be rescued from. And actually we need more appreciation of ordinariness because there is no yeah. ordinariness. It's all magic being um, a human alive and all that. And anyway, I'm doing my waxing lyrical about this. So I'd go on for about three hours. So um... No, I completely agree. And I think there's a couple of things I'm thinking. We have to check ourselves on that, you know, because I'm guilty of it. Of, yeah. Of, 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 yeah, why do, so, you know, it's when you we went on a really amazing holiday a couple of years ago, you know, a treaty one to Mauritius. And actually, we still had exactly the same arguments that we would have had wherever, and which is how we now go camping because, again, low expectations and it, it somehow enables you to see to see the, the really great normal stuff, not not thinking, oh, just because we're in this lovely situation, I'm going to suddenly be joyful. No, I, I think that's true, and I, um, I, 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 I'm, I'm the same, and that's one of the reasons I was, I found it so weird in, uh, like, Ibiza. Like, I was, I was living in this beautiful villa at the time I became ill, and I thought, I looked, I remember looking out at the Mediterranean Sea, and thought, this is literally the most beautiful view I've ever seen. I feel mm-hmm. the worst I've ever felt, and it's often, it's very easy when you lack something. Like, I was, I was uh, in debt for a lot of my life, and it's not fun being in debt. But, but it's, sometimes what I did when I was in debt was imagine I was unhappy because I was in debt. And the big crisis comes when you're suddenly not in debt and you, you get, get a windfall or you get some money 
and yet you still feel the same and then you're like oh, mm. oh crap the problem's me <laughs> i've got to sort you know you you take mm. yourself with you like same with holidays doesn't matter where you're going in yeah. the world you can be trekking across the himalayas you can be on a beach in uh, mauritius or you know saint lucia or something you're still you you still mm. got to take yourself your own head yeah so you know i i feel like it, it's not necessarily where you are is it it's about perspective and if you can change perspective and we're not encouraged to do that we're encouraged to imagine that it's via external things um that will make us happy and that's sort of how consumerism works and you know our whole idea of because you're worth it I mean, self-worth almost becomes something you buy via l'oreal or mm. Well, that's, yeah, that's what I'm, because I'm obviously a huge believer in self-compassion, but there's also a part of me in that really when you are in the darkest places, you have, you have to save yourself. And, and yeah. that is, it, that is it. Like, and because people have said, oh, what do I do to help a loved one? And as you said, in those darkest times, the people can be right, really surrounding you with love and you can't see or feel it. Totally, totally, absolutely, and and yeah. So it, it's it, it's not just about people loving you or caring for you. You've got to allow that. You've got to, it's got to start with you. You've got to have some sort of self love and self compassion, and not see and whatever. And often, like you know, I can remember like when you're depressed, you get in a vicious circle because you act a bit of a dick. I certainly did. Mm-hmm. I was a difficult boyfriend for a, a, a good length of time, and then you get into a vicious circle where you see yourself as a bad person. And if you see yourself as a bad person, you start acting like a bad person. So to break that cycle, you've got to believe you're just a human being who, yes, is flawed, but you're as capable of goodness as badness. And and, mm. and we all need that. I feel like we're in an age of, uh, uh, you know, a lack of forgiveness where we don't forgive other people for their errors, but we also don't mm. forgive ourselves and we beat ourselves up. So I feel like that's probably what we need a bit more of, a bit of forgiveness, mm. a bit of acceptance of other people's imperfections and of our own imperfections. And actually stop busying ourselves with other people's lives. I think 2020 has taught me that. Like when I was so busy judging how everyone else was interpreting the rules that yeah. I was ruining my own experience of being able to be out for an hour or whatever. And it's just like you've just got to yeah, look at yourself and yes. obviously your people closest to you. Absolutely. You, you, you have to, you have to, it's like that thing about, um, you know, an airplane coach, you have to get your own oxygen mask mm. on first. You can't, you know, you, you're told if, a, if something goes wrong on a plane, aren't you? But you put your own mask on. Then your kids. Uh, then your kids. Cause you, you can't help your kids if you're not that you've got to at some point, um, mm. you know, and it's not, it, it's the opposite of being selfish because you're, yeah. you're useless to other people. If you know, it's, it, your head's not so, there. Yeah. And you become a kinder person if you're kind to yourself. If you fundamentally believe that you're uh, not worthy of love, it's very hard to love any anyone or anything else. Ain't that the truth? Two more questions before, or three more, maybe a couple more, but getting towards the end. First of all, someone met, DM'd me to say, how do you know if it's just a bad patch? I know my answer to that, but I'll let you answer it. Well, I mean, I suppose, technically speaking, you don't know. But I believe that, you know, it. I think for me that 
everything is kind of a patch you know everything in life is change every single thing in life is change just the way that leaves fall off trees in winter and grow back in summer just from caterpillars into butterflies every every sort of aspect of nature is change and death and rebirth and all of that and the same with our minds i feel like you i've never known i you know just as just as there's no such thing, and we'd love it, wouldn't we, if it was a, a thing of a, of a happiness patch that lasted mm. forever. That just doesn't happen. But the same, too, with the bad patch. You don't have a bad patch forever. If you, Even if you have hard times forever, you have different hard times. You have mm. different approaches to those hard times. You, you, you kind of, the dark and the light sort of go together. So wherever is darkness and wherever is deep darkness, that is so often followed by lightness. And when you reach that point of light, that dark patch actually makes the good patch brighter. You know, like on a, on a picture or a piece of art, if you've got a lot of dark shadow and then you've got light, you're really drawn to the light because, because of the shadow around it. And there's a fancy Italian word, chiaroscuro, which I know because I did art at university, which means the contrast of light and shade. And I feel like our li- lives are like that. We have light and shade the shade almost exists to sort of highlight the light so bad patches are horrendous but i do feel like they're an integral part of almost everybody's Mm. life and whatever level of external success or however happy you look on social media or whatever we kind of have the same quantity of that we kind of have the same quantity of angst in our life and there are only patches in life and we, we will eventually become someone else having a, a different experience. Mm. But yeah, it can be horrible to feel stuck in that moment, but it's never a tip. It's just a patch. Yeah. And my advice would be, if you're wondering whether you should get help, ask for help. Like yep. no, no doctor, if that's the route you're going down. I often try and talk about that experience of, of walking into a doctor's surgery. And for them, seeing a mental health patient isn't a weird thing. They're not going to treat you like anything strange and, and they will be there to help you. And yeah, everyone would rather that you made that walk into the doctors or had the conversation than to wonder so whether you were bad enough. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that was sort of like the hardest thing. I lost friends because I was scared to talk about um, depression and it wasn't because they stigmatized me for having depression because they didn't know it's because i'd just be cancelling things mm. i'd just be hiding 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 and all those things you you imagine will happen these terrible things that you imagine will happen when you actually talk to people about it, it, it it's so the opposite you know i i, I mean there are so i'm not saying that there aren't certain employers who'd be bad about mental illness or whatever. But generally, especially in this day and age, people are so supportive. And certainly medically, doctors, you know, it's part of their itinerary now. It's one of the one of the most common things they see is people going into um, a GP surgery with uh, depression and anxiety. And, yeah, I mean, it's horrible that it's, it's such a common universal experience. But there's also kind of comfort when you're going through it mm. to realise there's so many people. You know, for instance, 20 years ago, the only examples I had in my head of depressed people were people who had died by suicide. Yeah. And, you know, that is such a rare, a tiny fraction of people who have a bad mental health experience. And it, most of them didn't actually need to die by suicide. They just had that horrendous moment where they did, did something. Um, so, yes, I, I'd always believe in uncertainty and hope and all those things where, where you know, 
the future is open and it changes all the time. Recent piece you wrote, which is Reasons to be Hopeful, I thought was such a nice reframe in, given where we're at. Can you remember off the top of your head any of your points in that? Well, just about, uh, just about uh, the, the I, I mentioned my grandmother, actually. I mentioned mm. my grandmother at one of the points because my grandmother was Jewish and she was in Austria at art school. Um, she'd been at St. Martin's in London and they had a year out at art school in Austria. Um, and so she was a Jewish person in Austria when Hitler invaded Austria and how how sort of random those sequence of events was, how she managed to escape and she escapes, it's almost like the sound of music, she escapes by flirting with a Nazi train guard. She was 18 at the time, or 19, and her and a friend got on a train out of Austria. And then at her experience of that proximity to Hitler made her want to become a nurse um, in London when she came back, so she was a nurse in the Blitz. And she met my granddad in that, because uh, he had uh, burns from a bomb in the Blitz, and he was treated by my grandma, and so out of that horrendousness of experience of being a Jewish person in Nazi Austria and escaping, she then ended up meeting um, my grandfather, which led to my dad being born, which led to me being born, and so I, you know, at, mm. in a weird way, you know, I owe my life to to the worst experiences of things that can. It's just about how, you know, things bloom out of the most sort of despairing times, and that's what the, what I sort of wanted to impart yeah. in that article. And I do, yeah, to to leverage back to this year, I I have absolutely no doubt that although this has been a challenging year and I'm not even comparing it to your grandmother's experience, but we will, we will look back and say that taught us so much. No, and exactly. I, I wouldn't, wouldn't be here without, I'm sure of it across our children, across everybody. So to wind up, well, first of all, where can people find you on the internet? Um, in too many places. Uh, <laughs> all over it. <laughs> all over it. Where can't they? Where can you avoid <laughs> me on Twitter? No, I, I, I I'm, I'm, I think I'm my best self on Instagram. I do Twitter probably more, but I, I'm, I'm, Twitter brings out my worst sort of grumpy side. So if you don't want grumpiness, I would follow me on Instagram where I try and be a bit more considered and a bit more hopeful. And I'm Matt Z Haig, H-A-I-G, on Instagram. And the Z is a made-up middle name I made up for myself when I was eight years old and jealous that my sister had a more unusual name than me. My <laughs> My sister's called Phoebe. And before Friends, hardly anyone yeah, was called Phoebe. That was rare. That was rare in Nottinghamshire before um, Friends. So I, 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 I call myself Matt Zerebable. Hey, and that, that's a real name. My grandfather had a family tree, and like about 400 years ago, there was someone in our family called Zerebable. Hey, Have you so, put it in officially? No, just for your own. No, joy. it's not on a birth certificate. But <laughs> I did, for years, as a kid, I always put my name as Matt Z. Hey. Did um, you? That's so, so eccentric. It's brilliant. So, yeah. So it's not Matt's in some sort of crazy nineties sort of like no street style. <laughs> it's Matt Z. Z. Haig. That's my name. Okay. You should go find him. He's very, he's, very, he's very good at what he does. Yeah. But I'm finding it really interesting, and it's a whole other conversation. But you know that alcohol isn't good for you. You know that Twitter isn't great for you, and yet you uh, pick those scabs, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, Twitter. Twitter has its good points. I feel yeah. like I feel like there's certain thing, you know, certainly there's certain social movements that you know, like the whole Me Too thing, Black Lives Matter, and stuff have been massively aided and boosted by the being a, a social media form like Twitter. 
But it's just that if you spend a lot of time on there or you take it too seriously, yeah. like I used to, I still tweet and a lot of it's, a lot of it's venting, you know, and there's a lot to be sort of cross about and, a lot, you know, and, and Twitter's a space for that. But I, I am trying to be more hopeful even on my Twitter account these days. So you could you could follow me on Twitter, but um, yeah, I, I can't promise you won't be unfollowing me within about a fortnight. Interestingly, since this episode was recorded, Matt has come off Twitter completely. He posted on Instagram saying, "I feel so much better after leaving. I hadn't realised how much the negativity was getting to me. I'm a better person without it." He goes on to say that he thinks it's fine for some people, but not for others, which is a valuable thing for us all to be aware of. What works for us as individuals and what helps us keep our mental health in check. And now back to me again. I wanted to offer a bit of reflection. Though I loved having the opportunity to chat to Matt, he's someone I admire hugely. I found our conversation really weighed heavy. I had one of those big dips you get after an adrenaline rush and felt quite wobbly for the rest of the day. Talking about mental health is important and necessary, but it has to be done mindfully. I want to normalise it. I want to share my experience of anxiety and depression, but weirdly putting my brain in that place does feel like a risky move sometimes, almost like tempting fate. Or perhaps it's tied to how exposing vulnerability can feel. Similarly, I'm working on learning to speak up when I'm in a bad patch. When I can't see to say the words, I found it easier to say, I am struggling over text. If you are feeling wobbly, please do reach out. Go to your GP or there's a ton of charities who can help. I'll put a list of resources in the show notes. The fact is, mental health doesn't come with an easy answer. But know this for sure, however hard it feels, the lights will come back on again. The sun will shine again. It always does. You aren't alone. My conversation with Matt was proof of that for me and hopefully it was for you too. Thank you so much for listening. This has been But Why Podcast. Please do subscribe and leave a review. Better still, if you wanted to share your thoughts or submit a But Why question to cover, then drop me an email on butwhy at clemmytelford.com. And a quick thank you to Mags Creative, who were my production partners on this episode. That's it from me. Goodbye.